0: You're listening to the Names Not Numbers podcast, the annual Ideas Festival produced by Editorial Intelligence. What Matters in Philanthropy, chaired by Giles Gibbons, the CEO and founder of Good Business.
1: It perhaps the most important issue of Names Not Numbers and the most wonderful gift that we humans have, the gift of giving doing something not to keep yourself alive and well, but to help someone else. Philanthropy, the act of giving. Actually, it comes from uh, uh, the phrase a love of humanity back in Greek times, which I rather like as as a thought. We may come back to that. If you love it, you want to care for it and do something active about it. So philanthropy, what is there to discuss? I mean, if you think about it, it's good. It feels good when you do it. And it's good for the people who need it. So why this discussion? Well, if only the world were so simple. Some give a lot, but a lot don't give at all. Some countries give more than others. Some communities only give to their own. And Joe this this afternoon was was saying that people in America are are least satisfied with their giving than anything in their life. But I think, again, something to come back to. What's, What's behind that? Some governments incentivize it. Others are dependent on it. Is philanthropy... Uh, a substitute for government spending or on top of. And in a time when the rich are getting richer and the poor poorer, as we heard today in developed markets, not in developing, do those with have a moral responsibility to give to those less fortunate in order that we can all live in harmony, rather than separate and against each other. Now, to discuss these challenges, we have a rich and diverse panel to help us. Joe Sorrell from the Gates Foundation, an expert in spending the world's richest man's money, but also, interestingly, persuading governments and other people to spend money on the causes that they care about, too. Ben Elliot, who helps the richest spend their money on the good things in life, which includes giving. And then just to confuse ourselves, two Catherines and two mayors, not twins, separate, one's got an A in the, in the mayor, one's got an E. Catherine Mayer writes on the subject. And is at the moment writing about our future king, philanthropist, charity entrepreneur. Interesting to hear your perspective on him. And Fideen, Lady Catherine Mayer, financier, charity entrepreneur herself, who is going to kick off with some personal thoughts before we all join the panel. So, Lady Catherine.
2: Hello everybody. First of all, I will say as well, thank you for being here and not for being listening to food, but listening to us instead. My name is Catherine Mayer, the other Catherine Mayer, the one who is married to at Sir Sox. Anyway, I am here on this unusual panel where uh, I understand the subject is philanthropy, nonprofits, and our role into uh, how we can influence uh, global poverty and solve it. Uh, My personal answer is that our role is actually very minimal and the reason for that is that I look at myself running a small charity, I campaign, I do policy, uh, I try to raise money for my charity, uh, I try to push governments to do things and I have so much on my plate, I wish I'd had more time to do what I need to do so I can't get involved with other things as well. And the other thing is that I think one needs to concentrate on the things that we know about. So I know about my issue, but I don't know about other problems. And the point is also you need passion. And I think that to do good things, you need to be passionate about what you're doing. And I think that one can generalize, but one can also say that most charities have been started by people who have been affected in one way or another. And this is exactly what happened to me. As you heard, I used to work in the city, and some of you know my story, and in fact, Catherine Mayer interviewed me way before I was called Catherine Mayer, uh, back in the 90s. My story starts in 1994, when I sent Alexander, who was just age 9, and Constantine, who was just 7, to go and visit their father on holiday, during their summer holiday. And they never came back. And despite my having custody, despite international conventions, despite the English and court, High Court ordering the immediate return to the United Kingdom, despite 40 court applications to the German courts, despite more than £100,000 spent trips back and forth, I saw my children in 10 years for 24 hours. I'm sorry, even so many years later, I find it difficult to talk about it. Anyway, I don't need to explain how it feels, sadly, to lose your children in this way. It's just in one second, your whole world just completely disintegrates. You don't know where to find help, you don't know what to do, you're suddenly in between sort of a court system that you don't understand, people are taking you one place, the other place. Thank God I had amazing friends who surrounded me. And it was, I can't tell you the hell it was. And if it was hell for me, just imagine how it must have been for my children, who didn't know what was going on, why was mommy not there. And the point is, somebody who takes their children away from the other parent obviously is not going to tell the children, your mother or your father is a wonderful person, and they're fighting to see you. They're not going to say that. So, for 10 years, I only worried about my kids. My case became quite a, well, cause célèbre in the 90s. It was written a lot about. Some of it is still left on the internet, but those were times that there was not any internet. And and sadly, I thought at the beginning that my case was completely unique, and people sort of didn't quite believe it. What, your children were abducted to Germany? It's a European country. How come you're not able to see them? And so that also made it very difficult for me, was also the fact that there was no closure. I had to explain why it's not working. Anyway, after I was in the press, uh, I suddenly got approached by hundreds of parents who were in the same situation as I am, as I was. And that's when I realized my case is not unique. And if I couldn't do something about my own case, at least a way for me to cope and a way for me to actually long-term tell my children I never abandoned you, was to... Take on the whole issue. And that is, in a sense, how I started this rather small organization that my husband always says punches way above its weight. And it's called Parents and Abducted Children Together, not to confuse with another charity called PACT that deals with child adoption. Anyway, this for the past 11 years, um, well, actually more than that, um, I started this charity and we have been able to make. sorry, to make some changes. Uh, We have changed the legal system, we have uh, Brussels two beasts in uh, in the European Union. I testified in Congress, I testified in front of the Belgian Senate, Um, so we did things. But behind all this, I have to say that to start an NGO, you must be a lunatic. And the only way you can do it is because you are passionate about an issue. And the same way I don't want to talk forever, I probably already talked for too much, Um, the same way I think that um, personally I don't even like the subject that is proposed because I find that Those people who do give money, and it's not necessarily the rich people, because when, you know, I always have to raise a bit of money, and, you know, we can all pontificate about how great the work is, but actually, to come down to it, not that many people do give money. And I think all my friends have been bugged for 11 years. They're a bit tired of me. Uh, But I think for the people who do give money, and they're mainly Americans, I think those people should actually be honored, and they should be respected, and I feel very strongly that um, this conversation of criticizing people because they give money to one cause rather than another cause, I wish they'd give to my cause, but as long as they give to somebody, I think they do a fantastic job, and I would like to be more American about that, and I would like to celebrate the people who give and help. Anyway, on this note, I would like to just show you a one-minute video. Um, just It doesn't tell you much, but it just will show you that the problem I'm dealing with is not just parental abduction, it is also children who are abducted by strangers, like the Kate McCann case, but I mean, that is one case, but believe it or not, in the United Kingdom, a child is abducted or uh, nearly, um, how do you say, um, sorry, sorry, what's the word, not abducted, but an abduction, which is not successful, but to the point that the child has to actually fight to liberate itself, by strangers, one a week. And the number of missing children in the United Kingdom, you will be absolutely stunned. So we've got a lot of work to do.
1: Thank you for that powerful uh, personal story. Um, Is philanthropy important? Joe, do you you want to kick us off with...? uh...
3: Is philanthropy important? Yeah, it's critical. Uh, I think philanthropy... Well, let me answer that question with a story. Um, I I work... My background uh, has been in in communications and specifically in uh, in politics. I went to work uh, in the the Clinton-Gore administration, working for Vice President Al Gore in uh, 1992, and came with a a great deal of optimism, um, believing that um, two people who certainly uh, reflected my values and what I wanted to see uh, the U.S. government do in terms of presenting a, a bolder, more progressive vision for uh, for the country's future. Uh, and, and I worked uh, for someone who's very passionate, Al Gore, about the environment, um, an, an issue that was very close to me. But I saw in that time that, that uh, even with um, good ideas, even with uh, a united Congress, Democratic Congress, uh, the Clinton-Gore administration failed in many cases to, to produce uh, meaningful legislation on... on uh, on the environment, and, and so uh, th- the relevance to that is that I left in 1996 um, government because I did think that there were real limits, um, even you know, uh, to people that held one of the most important uh, jobs in, in the world, and so I, I think um, corporations, I, I, I spent some time uh, working in the private sector. I, I think there are limits to the public sector to the private sector that, that ideally the uh, philanthropic third sector can, can fill. And we've seen the numbers. The numbers are, are real. In, in the US, uh, $316 billion last year spent on, uh, on charitable giving, on, on uh, philanthropy, whether that's individual foundation giving. So very substantial now how you do it and, mm. and doing it well, I think, is another challenge.
1: Yeah. Catherine, where, where do you start <laughs> on
3: philanthropy?
0: Um. Well, um, I'm going to start since since this is the first time that Catherine and I have ever been on a panel together. (laughs) And I'm glad that we haven't created some kind of um, dark star by appearing in the same place of (laughs) Um, anti-matter. I just thought I'd I'd tell you a story about about, um, philanthropy that that in fact involves the other Catherine. Um, I got an email from Julian Fellows, the creator of um, Downton Abbey, darling Catherine, um, I'd like you to help me organise a fundraiser at Highclere Castle. Um, and uh, I thought, yeah, this has to be for the other one because this happens quite a lot. And um, I was about to email back and the phone rang and he was on the phone completely unstoppable and he'd managed to confuse our contacts in his address book. Um, and I'm sure, I'm sure it was going to be a wonderful fundraiser, but where I, where I stand on on this is that I'm somebody who watches other people do this but one of the defects if you like of journalism is that is that we watch and analyse but we probably don't do enough ourselves right. and I in my current role as a biographer of the Prince of Wales I have had the chance to see an extraordinary project uh, that he is working on in Scotland where in fact I also met Ben, um, he uh, there was a stately home up there that was going to be um, sold and its contents dispersed, and he got together a consortium. It's called Dumfries House. Um, it was partly to uh, save the contents and, and keep them together, but it was also. It has become the hub of a very interesting um, experiment in philanthropy, where um, it is being used both to bring people in. Um, to uh, learn various kinds of trades and crafts uh, in the grounds of this stately home, but also as an attempt to regenerate one of the poorest parts of Scotland. Mm. And it is huge in its ambition, and much of what he does is huge in its ambition. Joe mentioned the limits of the state and the limits of the private sector. What's interesting, is obviously there's this debate about how big the state should be. There's a debate always about what the private sector can do. But one of the things that that tends to ignore is that where philanthropy, where you see it working in something like the Prince of, what the Prince of Wales is doing there or some of his other charities, philanthropy is, is smaller and more targeted. It's, it's like what... Uh, Catherine is, is herself doing, it can go for the parts of society that literally would otherwise not be reached, mm. and in more inventive ways. And because these are private individuals who then go to, often to corporations or other private individuals for, for the money, there, is, there tends to be more flexibility. But there are also dangers to that, which, if you like if you 'd like me to shut up, we can come back. Well, no to so
1: you 're both saying that there is a unique role that philanthropy yes. can play as, a, as opposed to the other sectors, and you 're saying that that's to specific small areas where it 's defined. Would you call Joe the end of? malaria a a small specific or can it be a big specific it can be a big specific specific, seems like a big thing to me but
0: but these are often these are often things that that um are you know sometimes it's the failure of the state to address something but sometimes it is because these are very interesting, specific areas where it would be very hard for the state to go. And And hard
3: for the private sector as well. Yeah, and
0: sometimes you actually, I mean, for instance, I usually don't accept, I mean, accept is
2: a big word, but we are trying to be privately funded and not funded by the government. Because if I'm funded by the government, the Home Office gives me money, then I can't criticize some of the policies that the government is doing, uh, for instance, on missing or abducted children or with the police. So I want to be privately funded so one does rely a lot on philanthropy and private corporations, definitely. And, and are
1: those areas that are uniquely for philanthropy, are they growing? Are there more and more of them? Or is it a, is it a dying art? Or is it, is it superseding government in places? Uh, is, it, is it growing
3: in that sense or, or I don't not? think philanthropy should ever supersede government. And I don't think philanthropy should, should uh, take the place or displace what should be the role of of commercial um, interests to to help solve challenges. But if you look at an issue like global health, uh, where some of the worst problems in the world um, happen or or take place within populations that that, uh, can least afford to address that. And so I think philanthropy can come in and and help organize markets, in in a sense make make markets work better for for the poorest. Mm. I mean, one example of that is is trying to, to look at the, the development of, of new drugs, new vaccines, new interventions that can help address some of the biggest challenges, like malaria. Um, and yeah, again, it, it's not necessarily an, a, a viable commercial investment for companies to take on some of these challenges where they don't have a predictable upside. So, mm-hmm. philanthropy can come in and say, how can we help mitigate the risk that you would otherwise take? How can we guarantee that if you build it, there will be a market to buy that? And it, it, there's a, a disease, pneumococcal disease, that uh, f- for which our kids get, but there's a very safe, uh, effective vaccine for in many developing parts of the world. There isn't. And so donors got together and said, if you build a vaccine that, that addresses pneumococcal disease for the kids in, in poor countries, then we'll guarantee 1.5 billion dollars the purchase of the vaccine once you, uh, once you develop it and once you make it affordable. And I think that's a really good example yeah. of addressing market failure. So,
1: so there is a unique role for philanthropy to play. Is there enough money to fill those roles, or will it is, will it keep expanding or contracting to fit the money? I mean, Ben, you you, you talk to lots of people who have I mean, the ability to give a lot. Do, do they? Do, are, they, uh, are they doing more of it? Do you feel like there's a? a I mean, my responsibility
4: as the chairman of our foundation is to coerce as many of our customers, as many people as I meet, including perhaps some of the people in the audience today, to give as much money to the, the, the causes and the charities that, that we feel strongly about. In the UK, and I'll take a UK specific at the moment, um, we as a, a country are the sixth come sixth in the league of the most philanthropic people on the planet. And that's not just giving money, that's helping a stranger and being kind to somebody and those things. Everyone looks quite rightly to America um, at the moment as being the poster child for uh, you know, the state um, um, doing some things, but the role of great philanthropists and charities doing other. Um, the issue at the moment, which I think people are struggling with, is is... You know, what should the state do and what should philanthropists do? If you tax people more, and this is, there's, there's, there's nothing um, in any of the reports that I've read that, that suggests that philanthropy will f- flourish in any shape or form. So you think of high tax economies like Sweden and Denmark, I think they come in the low 30s and 40s in terms of. Of, of um, the rank of, uh, okay. of giving in, in terms of that, um, what I, I think, and to, to echo the point you were making before, is that at the moment there's lots of people who pay lip service to this. And how do you create a culture? How do you coerce more people to give more? And th- there are ways that you can honour people. You talk. I mean, there's you know the policy unit at Number Ten is talking. Mm-hmm. You know, this nudge unit mm-hmm. of creating walls of people who have given and, and done things successfully. I think they've only paid lip service to that. I think that they should do a lot more. Uh, in this country, if you think about the Sunday Times Rich List or in America the Forbes List, there's only a small part of that list that talks about how much people give. And I think that uh, it would be interesting to, to create a kind of role of honour of the greatest philanthropists of our time. And I think sitting here in the 21st century in Britain... Uh, you know, we all look back to the Victorian era of the great philanthropists there, and, and, and at the same time in America, there were all sorts of people doing great things. We need to celebrate. I mean, what Bill and the Gates are doing, what the Prince of Wales is doing in this country—that needs to be celebrated more. How how you change people's opinions on that is a combination of banging on about it repeatedly and relentlessly, and you know talking about these people doing great stuff we look after lots of people uh, kind of worldwide and one of the first kind of conversation pieces with some of you know rich people who have made great fortunes is how much money they give but actually when you drill down into the detail it's, it's, it's not very much. And, you know, if you think about society and our connection historically to... You, you mentioned your, in your opening, in terms of the church or religious groups, uh, in, in America, you know, there's great strength in, in that. In other parts of the world, there isn't necessarily. Um, but w- w- what I feel is uh, any good society should celebrate giving, and yeah. I don't think that the state should be
1: uh, doing all of this... Um, um, Itself. So just picking up on two points there, I think celebration is a, is a key point that, that has come up. Uh, do, do you, don't you think that there's, a, there's something beyond just feeling good by sort of publicly getting a feeling of, uh, that, that you're sort of being honoured, that actually there's a very sort of inner, inner warmth that you get from giving? And, and actually, you talk to lots of people and help them lead richer lifestyles in terms of getting the most out of life. Does it ever get to that discussion that you can actually help them have a much richer life through what they give and how they give rather than going on a yacht? Or, you know, can you get into that discussion? Or is that just sort of off limits?
4: No, I think it's... I I think uh, certainly the tone, um, and I think post-2008, I think that living in a society where where clearly... I've been talking about the UK, where... It seemed, and if you remember, and people forget those riots that happened in mm-hmm. London, you suddenly had the rich living here and the poor living here, and, and kind of a complete, you know, nobody understanding anybody. Um, Anyone at all, so I think it's something that's very present. I mean, one of the things that's been talked about, and I I think should be thought about, is there's been this influx in the UK uh, of of super wealthy, ultra high net worth individuals, and they choose the UK for many different reasons. One of the reasons is that they don't have to pay as much tax here on their global earnings if they went to America. Uh, they would have to do that. Now, if we do that and, and we welcome those people to spend money and create jobs here, we should maybe think that the levy that we put on them should actually um, have um, s- some significant part that goes to a chosen char- charity. And, and for me, if they live... And everyone talks about these areas in central London being the preserve of only the very richest and, and the lights not being off and no jobs being created. What I would suggest, and it's something that I know has been talked about at government is that actually maybe you do tax them um, uh, or, or take a tax from them and that money would go to something in that locality, perhaps an educational or, or, or some other charity
1: in terms of those things. So, so, so you're saying on top of the non-DOM yes. fixed rate of 50,000, which feel, feels completely ridiculously small... Are we asking them to sort of pay a voluntary philanthropy tax? I think that, that would, they would, I think how would, would be, that work? I think it would
4: be a jolly good idea. And whilst there are lots of people who give lots, there are lots of people, clearly from the evidence, who don't give anything at all and just pay lip service to it. So one of the ways is to create a culture which honours it, but for those who don't do that is to, to collect it in a more but, coercive way.
2: But would that be, if one honours people who give, wouldn't those, for instance, Russian oligarchs, instead of actually not wanting to give because they don't want their names to be out there and criticized. They could actually be encouraged to give. You'd uh, like to think so. I think in America, for instance, I mean, we've lived in America for six years. One of the things which is amazing is the number of you know, organisations or sort of you have big bowls that are done and people are honoured and, you know, a plaque on the wall, uh, you know, this building, for instance, the Missing and Exploited Children building was given by uh, Charles Wong and it's written in big words on the building. And this is, you know, people have that feel-good and we're all humans. And I think that the feel-good factor... I mean, one of the things that I find, for instance, very difficult running a small charity in England is that the the problem is that the feel-good that you were talking about, uh, people feel good about writing a cheque and sending it to a faraway land. It is very easy uh, for me to come up to somebody and say, do you know how many children are starving in Africa or in China, or whatever you want. But when I start telling them, do you know that in England, at your front door, there are children who are exploited, children who sleep on the street, uh, child slavery exists, people don't like to hear that because it's too close to home. Mm. So, the feel-good factor of human beings is also, we, we need to be realistic. And I think the feel-good, if people are recognized for giving, I think maybe that's a way, rather than actually having
0: to pay taxes. What's... Um, had, I th- sorry, th- sorry, 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 I just think that there are some cultural um, issues here. Yep. You know, one of, the, one of the things about America and, you know, the, the celebration, there's also a celebration of wealth in America in the way that there sure. isn't here, you know. Uh, wealth here is something to be discreet with, to be somewhat embarrassed about, in the same way, actually, that do, you know, doing good is something that you are much more virtuous if you do good in a way that is not visible. And so I think that there... I, yeah, I think it is changing, but, but it may change the other way, because one of the things about your high-net-worth individuals is people have problems that they probably shouldn't have about um, trying to work out what people's motives are and why they're doing good and and who those people are. But there are actual due diligence issues about some of the... You know, because because the world's wealth is becoming more and more concentrated in parts of the world where there are sort of very difficult things going on, where people very rarely get wealthy without... Um, some very interesting story behind why they've got wealthy. Mm -hmm. There then can be certain issues for the... Um, Organisations that want to, to take their money and spend it, which is another reason. By the way, I think having some some funneling, some general funneling system would be a good thing because you could you could kind of launder their money without money laundering, if you like. Well, we have a, a, um, a you know
1: there is a system called community foundations, which created in in the US and actually come over to the UK, mm. where you know geographically based foundations that can be sort of fundraising for an area, and you could use those as a sort of voluntary philanthropy. I just want to pick up on a point, um, Joe, you said earlier, about that actually Americans aren't happy with their giving. The majority of people that you've talked to through the Gates Foundation uh, are stressed by their giving. It's not a happy process even when they're being honoured. Can you talk a bit about that and how, yeah. how we get over that? Because that yeah. seems a real issue.
3: And I, this is more reflections that, that, that Bill and Melinda have had over the years and, and what led them to create this uh, initiative with Warren Buffett called the Giving Pledge. Um, over the years, Bill and Melinda have talked to different people about, about giving and people have approached them, of course, and said, you know, we're thinking about getting more philanthropically active and w- what would that look like and how, you, how have you approached it? And one of the things that really struck them is that people would often remark that, you know, life is going well. I, I, I know what, uh, you know, I, I'm very happy with my business. I'm very happy with my family life. But, I, you know, on the things that we've chosen to do philanthropically, we're very unfulfilled. We, we don't know if what we're giving to is the right thing. We don't know if, if, uh, if we're having the intended impact. We don't know how to, you know, we don't have a lot of tools at our disposal to, mm-hmm. to really understand what the organizations that, that we're, we're giving money to are, are, are being run well. And so I think um, uh, giving people better tools, better resources to make more informed decisions about how to program and and, and how to invest uh, philanthropically will end up giving people more of a sense of fulfillment, that that is one of the right places to to spend um, a person's life. I mean, I I, I agree that there are ways and, and people are motivated by different... Things and giving people honors and so forth is a, is, is a good thing. But I, I do think giving people more of an expectation that with wealth comes responsibility, that you yeah. should give back and give back earlier in life and not wait uh, until you're uh, you know, very old and, and, uh, and you know, want to figure out ways to dispose of your income, but use the expertise that made you successful in the first place, apply that to social challenges. Use the passion that, that has triggered your business success uh, plus your resources, and I think the impact will be, you know, much uh, much further. And that's that really is the motivation behind the giving pledge.
1: And and, and you talk about starting earlier, and, and I'm going to ask the question, and then um, put ask the, the audience. But I'm going to ask this question because I know um, my teacher Anthony, who is in the audience, will be asking it. Is can you can you teach philanthropy? Can you is it is it a Powerful, You know, is there a way of doing that? Uh, And and if you do that early enough, can it create that culture of giving that we talk about? I don't think
4: it needs to be taught in a school, necessarily, although it could be encouraged in schools, and there are many programmes that we all know about which have done that successfully. I think kind of charity starts at home kind of thing. I mean, uh, you you know, we as children, you know, my parents, uh, um, conditioned us to go and help people who are less fortunate than ourselves... Um, and I don't think... I know everyone, when one talks about philanthropy, one just talks about the amount of money. I mean, the, the act you talked about the love of uh, other man in, yeah. in terms of those things. I think philanthropy in this country um, is much more about how much money is raised. And, and yes, that should be a, applauded. Uh, if we were to ask everyone in this audience, which is maybe what you're going to do in a second, or, or when we did a straw poll of some of our customers, do you give money to charity? Unsurprisingly, everybody said yes. But the point you're making in terms of how, how can we get a return in the set, um, or, or some kind of analysis from the things that we give to would be interesting. In, in the UK, there's 160,000 charities, of which 90% of the money goes to, I think, 6% of, of those ch- charities. But I think most of us find it a frustrating process. Um, and uh, the more you can do on a, a global basis to educate people of how they can see... You know, you know, where that money goes, the more it will condition other charities, even small charities, to behave in exactly the same manner. And if we were sitting here 10 years ago, I don't think the level of debate about how badly or how well charities run would be as pressing as it is today. Mm-hmm. Everyone, the examination that all of those charities, the people that go and work in them, mm-hmm. the analysis that's done on them, is completely different. So we've come some way, uh, uh, some good way, but I think... Um, uh, we've clearly got somewhere to go.
1: Yeah. So, could we have some? any hands, any questions? Uh, wh- whilst I th- someone's it. got a microphone, <laughs> we, I can't see anything at all. Uh, someone over there.
5: Um,
0: Catherine, that's Catherine in the middle. Um, thank God for what you said, because I've been... Um, ..about culture and the American culture of, of respecting wealth or respecting the creation of wealth, because I've been sitting here thinking it's great if we uh, celebrate people who give but I know a lot of people who are very, very cagey about their wealth and therefore give anonymously, um, because in particular now, and what I want to ask you about is the politics of now. We live in a time, in a recession, when to be rich and to be known to be rich is to be hated. Um, So how do you think things will change as the economy moves forward? How can we be part of that change? And really just to pick up on Catherine's question, can we create, and is is it a good thing, to create a a culture where we celebrate the creation of wealth as long as you then give it away.
6: Do you want to... Uh, to? Yes. um,
0: (laughs) (laughs) uh, Absolutely. um, You know, there is... uh, Inequality is not going to be solved by getting embarrassed about inequality. Um, And uh, there are... But that is also why I raised the point about the, the ways in which the wealth patterns are changing around the world as well um, so all of that needs to be factored in and obviously there have been policy efforts famously m- most recently the big society um, you know to try and to try and um talk about ways in which this can be not just uh, something about the rich and the poor, but, but be a pan-social event. Mm-hmm. Um, but clearly, um, this is, this is inequality is, is the issue of our age. And that means a bigger role for philanthropy, not a, not a smaller role. It means a bigger responsibility for the even ever smaller number of people who hold the concentration of wealth. It doesn't mean mm. we should shy away from it. Um, it doesn't also um, solve the problem of inequality.
2: And if I can yes. say something about Claire, that yeah. question, uh, because I agree with you, I think that actually society in England is changing a bit. And one very good example, I mean, you know, having lived in other European countries, in England, is the only country except the United States where you have a rich list. I mean, you know, if you come in fr- from France or Germany or anywhere, you find it quite extraordinary that the Sunday Times actually publishes uh, how much money people have. So that's a very American and in way. And a giving
3: list. Too, yeah, it should exactly. Be noted. Yeah. So I think I spend agree with it also you. Has but how to give it? And yeah. so
2: I think tr- society has become more American in yeah. England.
4: The, the wealth creation point that you're making, though, is interesting. In 30 years ago, if you had the Sunday Times rich list, I think 75% of the people that would have been, were on that list inherited their wealth, and it's the absolute mm-hmm. opposite today. I don't think there's any... I mean, the politics of inequality I think uh, absolutely is the... you know central to... I mean, people feel very, very frustrated and very angry that some people... I think there's this confusion between the deserving and undeserving rich. Mm-hmm. But for, for me, and, uh, I think that the celebration of, of a great philanthropist and, uh, it is a really
1: marvellous thing and something that should be richly a, a, a applauded. So we haven't got much time. So, Claire, can we get a couple of qu- points and then we'll, um, we'll start wrapping up?
6: I mean, e- even the question that you, somebody suggested you ask was those of us who give to charity... Uh, assumes that charities are uncontentious but one of the problems is is that charities are a highly politicised set of organisations here And so I was thinking, oh, God, I won't be able to put my hand up and then everyone will think I'm mean, not that I've got any money. (laughs) But, I mean, that's not the point. The point is is that there's reasons I don't want to give to certain charities because they become vehicles of politics that I don't agree with. And they can't just get a pass because they're charities. So that's one dilemma, I think. Mm. And the question I wanted to ask is, I'm I'm fine with them banging on at people who are rich and saying give money, but there is... A little bit of nervousness I have because I do think that philanthropy will die if it doesn't have an element of voluntarism involved in it. And there is something about this kind of make the rich feel guilty enough that they give that slightly is distasteful to me. And one of the things that's happened in the debate around philanthropy and politics in the UK is this idea that you know the rich are venal, mean, you know horrible, horrible people over there. They must give their money to prove their worth as moral human beings, that doesn't seem to me to be an attractive way of encouraging people, but that is the form it's taking. Mm. So how do you nag and encourage, but I do think be very wary of forcing, because doesn't that destroy it?
1: Well, then it becomes a tax, in a sense, doesn't it? If yeah, you, if and you it's force worse, because it's kind of it. a
6: moral tax that's very unpleasant and actually has a political purpose of attacking wealth creation, which is where I'm actually nervous, because actually I do think creating wealth is a positive good
1: by starting early in schools. What about behind, just take
5: a Thanks. Um, Sorry, I'm Mark Henderson. I'm uh, Head of Communications at the Wellcome Trust. So uh, um, we uh, provide probably more philanthropic input in the UK than anybody else. Um, We spend $750 a year on um, principally scientific research. But um, one of the the, the interesting things, one of the reasons I think the Trust is successful, um, are two qualities that I think often are downplayed in in philanthropy or or not enough is made of them and that's good governance uh, and good evaluation of the impact that the spending we actually uh, carry out actually has. I mean, we have uh, very well-developed governance structures including uh, fairly uniquely a a board, well, we call them governors rather than trustees, but a board who are uh, properly paid for a start. Um, We have um, a well-developed uh, network of um, uh, evaluation of how the grants that we give uh, actually uh, have an output and what actually uh, happens as a result of them. And I think uh, to Ben's point about why some of those um, sort of smaller charities. Pr- perhaps uh, don't do as well as they could that often is one of the problems you see as well if you look at wider culture uh, the way in which sort of certain sections of the press have for example been targeting uh, salaries within charities looking at overheads within charities some of these are really bad metrics Mm -hmm. on which actually to evaluate effectiveness I mean do we actually need to give with better evidence and governance for that giving in order for it to be most effective
1: can I ask Joe? Do you want to respond to that on governance and and just yeah. wrap up? Then we just a few final thoughts, and, and if I can get one more question in, I will. But we've we've only got two minutes, two minutes to go. Yes, I'll take that question in the middle. Once Joe, do you want to say
3: anything? Yeah, sure. That? I mean, I just would agree. I mean, and, and welcome. I think is a fantastic example of of what um, good giving should be. Forty five percent of of the UK's total giving, um, which is. Uh, uh, you know about 1.2 billion 2 billion US annually i mean comes from welcome and i think they have they have chosen to to invest in another neglected area and that is uh, research and development where governments and again the commercial sector hasn't really um, been able to fill that gap but i do think governance and measurement and the tools are getting much much better as people are more aware about what good giving looks like as you see um, organizations that, that that rank charities that you know, highlight examples mm-hmm. of, of smart giving. I mean, as that proliferates, as you have conferences, if, as you have schools, I mean, I think that the, the quality will, will increase and I think people will have more of an ability to look at some of those charities and say, eh, you know, there's certain things that, uh, that, I don't, that I don't like. I do think that, it, you know, some of the, the commonly used metrics about uh, overhead and so forth, you know, are sometimes the absolute wrong metrics. But nonetheless, there are more diagnostics and more ways to measure.
1: Great. Just that final question in, in the middle there. Sorry, it's very difficult to see you It's all. okay. It's rather dark.
0: Patricia Hamzai, and I am an American, and I just wanted to go to the point about in Ameri- the, the beauty of the American system is that it's not all about the most wealthy in society, that citizens in America feel the volunteerism, they contribute back, you graduate from your university, you give money back to your to your school and I think it is throughout society and I think one of the failures here has been, say Cameron's big society just did not capture that ethos of trying to encourage everyone to contribute something back. And I think that contributes as well to this polarity of only seeing philanthropy as being the wealthy, and it's not something that's invested, is an investment from everyone in the that's community and
1: society. Catherine, do you want to well up I would up I would
2: agree with that, and I would say that sometimes it's not actually the richest people who give the most. Yeah. And, uh, but also I wanted to answer the, um, okay. the other question about uh, you know, applying for funds. Yes. And for instance, coming from the point of view of a very small charity, that uh, we are not a helpline. So, you know, I can't quantify that I'm helping 16 children or 6,000 children, but we do research, we do campaigning, we do policies, we push governments to change uh, the way the police, for instance, deals with missing children. But one of the things that we find very difficult when we apply for for money is that exactly the... The form that I have to fill in, first of all, I have to answer how many uh, people who are disabled are employed by my charity, how many people from a different background and origin, since I only employ uh, three people, I can't answer those questions. But you have those sort of silly questions involved. But then you also have the problem that, um, you know, how many children are you helping directly? I can't quantify it. Yes. And then you have the third problem, is that a lot of uh, the donations, people like to give to big charities. And so when you're a smaller charity and you want to remain small for various reasons, to be more flexible and not have admins, it is much more difficult to raise money. So bigger charities become bigger, and then you have a whole bunch of smaller charities who are always trying to Just survive. Just like the
1: capitalist system, that forgiving. Yes. A final thought, Catherine?
0: Um, I'm slightly uh, frustrated, in a way, by, by the this discussion and by my own part in it, because... I think that, in a way, we maybe needed to talk about which kinds of philanthropy we were talking about, because there is this huge continuum from from very small to to very large. Yes. And I, I guess I I sort of think that we're we're talking about people who are in a position to give large amounts of money is is really what mm. what I was what I was thinking. You can say that the whole culture should should be that way, but I think that there are Big issues in this country, in attitudes in this country that are innately hostile to that notion. It is linked through to all sorts of historical issues, including the class system. Phones and are working
1: somebody's... now, by the way.
0: <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Matthew Kirk, thank you very much. The Vodafone <laughs> system is now working. At <laughs> last. <laughs>
0: um, anyway, uh, yes, I just—it's it, one—it's one of those things where, where. Um, there there are all sorts of issues but one needs to figure out what those issues are and where they came from in order in order to address this and yes. and there there are real um problems that people have in recognizing philanthropy here and recognizing it um without just being inclined to attack it and tear it down and
1: Okay, thank you. Ben, you've got 10 seconds, I'm <laughs> being told, to final thought. We can learn a bit from America. Really? We, can all, we can all give a bit more. Yes. Thank you all very
4: much.
0: This podcast was produced by Sarah Peters for Editorial Intelligence. With thanks to Vodafone, FT Weekend, CNN, GQ, and all the partners and participants who made and make Names Not Numbers possible.